Okay, now you can open your Bibles uh, to First Peter, to the epistle of First Peter. Now, uh, we began verses 6 through 9 last week, and we themed it, or called it, identified the main theme there as the joy in trials, and the joy in trials is particularly the perfecting work of God in our faith, and not only the perfecting, but the proving work of God in our faith. That is his design in trials, and that's what Peter draws our attention to in verses 6 through 9. The overall picture in which these verses fall into is really a declaration of our salvation in a way that should excite from us worship. And worship is something we talked about actually uh, yesterday in men's study. We were discussing it really more in relation to the worship service and those kind of things. But really what the discussion was about was the idea of worship. And worship is, of course, the whole person response to the truth about God, the glory of God, who He is in Himself and who He is in His work, not only of creation, but ultimately for His people in redemption in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter is essentially drawing our focus and our attention to these truths, reminding us of the great glory of salvation, the great wonder of redemption in his dear and beloved son, and what it means then to be in Christ and to have in Christ every hope of an inheritance that God has given to us. In fact, our inheritance is Christ's inheritance that we participate in. We get to share in it with him. And and that's the glorious and wonderful truth that Sustains not only his original readers, but the church throughout the age sustains us. Is that we have something more real, more wonderful beyond our imagination. We have an inheritance in Christ. We have something that we have been saved for and to that we don't yet have yet. That's why it's an inheritance. But it is something promised to us and guaranteed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that promise then that fuels our worship. It is the work of God in His salvation, but it is the promise of God in the way that He will grant to us to experience the fullness of redemption in His Son. And then that worship should produce a life that lives consistently with these promises. So, the fancy way that that's sometimes described is that there are indicatives and imperatives in Scripture. Now, that's kind of fancy. For some of you, that's not so fancy. You may know what that means. But it essentially means this, that throughout Scripture, God addresses us and reveals us to us uh, in this manner, that because of who God is, it should reflect in our lives in a certain way. In other words, because this is true about God, God gives us commands based on that truth about God. And so here it is, the, Peter is kind of mixing those things together for us here. He's really going to get into the commands beginning of verse 13 of chapter 1 about how do you live that out. But it is even evident here in these opening chapters where he's, he's establishing for us the glory of our salvation, of our inheritance, of the future that is ours in Christ. And here in our verses this morning, he's demonstrating for us or laying before us that this is then how we are to live and to view God's providence in our lives, particularly through trial, through difficulties. How we are to lay hold of these promises and live consistently with our salvation and these future promises. And particularly, again, what God is doing through the suffering of these people and through our own suffering 
is he's causing us to have a clearer vision of who Christ is, a clearer understanding of our redemption in him. And so we introduced that last week. Let me read the passage, and I'm going to read verses 3 to 9, actually, just for context. And then we're going to go back into verses 6 through 9 and consider more specifically the love that we have for Christ that is both strengthened and demonstrated in our suffering. But read with me, beginning in verse 3, uh, down to verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's consider again what Paul has, Peter has reminded us of here in this epistle. And it is this. That any life that we enjoy, any realities of spiritual life that we enjoy, any of the mercies of God that we enjoy as those who are in Him and in his, as His children, are a direct result of His sovereign grace in our life. We are the chosen ones, and we are the chosen ones who have been made to see the glory of God in Christ, because as He says in verse 3, He has caused us to be born again. He has... Granted to us life. And this life has resulted in a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Which again we mentioned is really con- uh, encompassing both those ideas of the certainty of this hope. Because Christ raised from the, was raised from the dead. And the reality of this life. Because our life is in Christ. It's a life that he purchased for us. It's a life that we have in him. But the result of that is, is that it's a living hope. And it's a living hope that has a certainty in the inheritance that he's given to us. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then he tells us that this inheritance is protected by God. But it's protected by God specifically, he says in verse 5, through faith. Through faith. It's a faith that God gives. It's a faith that God sustains. It's a faith that lays hold of the promises of God. It's a faith that perseveres through trial. It's a faith that will be preserved to the end. It's a faith that we must exercise. It's a faith that we must... In fact, we have to trust God. That's what faith is. But it's a faith that ultimately, by God's own design, we, for His children, will never fail. It's a faith that will be sustained... It's a faith 
that in fact was also purchased for us by Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Everything related to our salvation was purchased by him. And we now experience. And what was purchased by him in his once for all final sacrifice is guaranteed for those for whom he died. Whom did he die for? Well, the chosen, yes, but everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and everyone who has rested in him. So this is our great inheritance. It's an inheritance protected by faith. And then he brings us into verse 8. Or actually, you can look at verse 7. And he says, In this you greatly rejoice for a little while, uh, even though, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In verse 7, so that the proof, and really it could be either the proof or the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's where we ended last week. But the idea is this, is that God has granted to you these promises by faith. He preserved these promises for you by a faith that he sustains and a faith that lays hold of his power. And then he strengthens this faith in a way that would almost seem odd to us at first through trials, through testing it, through challenging our faith. Bringing those things into our life as a result of our faith in Christ that would seem to be a threat to our faith from our perspective, but from God's perspective, is His sovereign purposes to strengthen, to build up, to purify, to bring us more comfort. And how do trials do that? They do that in the most basic and general way by like this. They wean us off of the loves of this world. They expose their own areas of unbelief in our life. And they cause us to more clearly and fully and completely focus our gaze on Christ. And His promises. And when we do that, we have an increase in joy. We have an increase in... The wonders and the comforts that come through the gospel. And that's the paradox that we live in then as Christians, isn't it? We live in a certain paradox. He says there's a grief that comes through these various trials. And it's a real grief. That term can also be translated sorrow. But it has an emotive aspect. In other words, trials are real. The suffering is real. It's not fake. They're real suffering. And there is a grief and a sorrow that comes with it. Again, that's why heaven, the promise, is so glorious when he says he'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death because these things are a part of this world and they're grievous to us. But at the same time, there is the hope. The hope that we have. And those things reside together in the heart of the child of God. A grief over remaining sin. A grief over suffering. The tragedies of this world. And yet a joy that we have that is certain and that's real. And that ultimately is greater than the grief. It transcends the grief. It transcends the pain. It transcends the sorrow. So we experience the reality of living in a fallen world, but that's not the greatest experience we have. The greatest experience we have as His children... Walking by faith is joy. Is joy. So Paul said in a, in a similar uh, idea, different context to the Thessalonians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope in the promises of God. And so we can see our trials, whatever it is in your life that comes particularly as a result of your faith in Christ, of walking righteously in this world, You can see that as God 
not working against your joy, but actually for your joy. God actually working for your growth in faith. And then he brings us here into verse 8. Well, let me mention there at the end of verse 7. And that the end result of this faith, he says that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, that could be either the praise and the honor and the glory that our faith brings to God because it was shown to be genuine. And so he's honored because we've trusted him and he's honored by our trust in him. His, his attributes, his character and his wonders put on display when we trust him. And he could be referring to it in that way. He could also be referring to it in the glory and the praise and the honor that God actually bestows on his children who were faithful in honoring them and praising them and glorifying their trust in him and their faith in him. Uh, there's many verses. Let me just give uh, one to you. Romans 2.29. He says this, that he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. There's a certain Reward, it connects with the idea of reward, a certain honor that God actually will bestow on his faithful children in the end. Can you imagine that? So God gives the faith to us who were dead. He sustains that faith in a, for, throughout life. And then when we get to the end of our life, stumbling as though we were and failing and weak as though we were, we should nonetheless persevere to the end. And then when we get to the end before God, He makes us stand before Him holy and blameless because of the work of Christ. And then He rewards us and He honors us for our faith. That's grace. That is grace. But that's the idea here as well. And then He says in verse 8, He says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is truly, truly wonderful. Love is behind our faith. Love for Christ in response to his love for us is the motivation and the internal reality that is sustaining these believers and that sustains us in this world. And so the, the big idea here is this. He's, he's saying... That if, paraphrase is that you came to believe in Christ through the message of the gospel that was brought to you and though you've never seen Christ with your own eyes and even now you don't see him with physical eyes but with the eyes of faith you have beheld his glory you have trusted his promises and you wait for him because you love him because you love him and it's all through the eyes of faith it's all through the eyes of faith Listen to the words of Jesus uh, in John 20. Don't turn there, but in John chapter 20, you'll remember the incident with uh, Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. when he, The Lord had appeared to some, the resurrected Lord, and Thomas says, well, I'm never going to believe and, uh, unless I stick my fingers in the wounds and so forth. So Jesus appears. Thomas realizes his foolishness of unbelief. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. In other words, Jesus is acknowledging even here that there is a kind of faith in him through not seeing him that's even greater than the faith of those who believed because they did see him. 
And as a matter of fact, the idea was that Thomas should have believed because not only of the witness Christ bore to himself when he said he would rise on the third day, but because of the witness of those who told him. And so then, John says this in verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. In other words, by believing the apostolic witness to Christ, there is the participation in the life and all of the benefits that are in Christ. And He is exalting here or acknowledging here that there is a greater honor, there is just as much full joy in believing having not seen than those who have seen. Now, what's one of the reasons to emphasize that? Which Peter does here. Well, for an unbeliever, for unbelief, that's a pretty ridiculous claim, isn't it? It's a pretty ridiculous claim. Sometimes you would have Maybe someone say, or maybe you've had this kind of conversation, at least heard of it. Well, if, if Jesus would just appear to me right now, if Jesus would just show up out of nowhere, thin air, right there in front of me, and then I would believe. You ever heard that? Yeah? Yeah, we've all heard that. Then I would believe. If he did this some great miraculous thing, then I would believe. If only I could see him. And of course, we know that this is not true. Luke 16 reminds us that the man who was suffering in Hades, the rich man, said, hey, send somebody back, right, to go warn my family. And Jesus says, they have the law of the prophets. If they won't believe them, what? They won't believe even if someone, with the rest, rises from the dead. Right? It's not, it's not the physical Christ that we need to see to believe. These had never seen him. We've never seen him. That's not the issue. Many saw Christ and his works and heard his teaching and remained in unbelief. The power of sin and the power of darkness on the mind and on the soul and on the will is incredible. It's overwhelming and it's amazing. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that can break that other than what Peter said right at the beginning, the Father who has caused us to be born again. But these have. And so they have not seen him. They've not physically seen him. But they believe the witness about him. They believed Peter's witness about him. And it's unsure who first brought them the gospel. But they believed Peter's witness. They believed that he had been with the Lord. That what he said was a faithful accounting of the Lord and his teaching. And so they believed these words and they loved him. They loved him. Again, just remember that rejection of the gospel is not intellectual. It's moral. It's moral. It's spiritual. But where God has given life, there is such a side of Christ that the soul can't help but to love him. One has said this, The Holy Spirit turns the love of souls towards God in Christ, for that way only can it apprehend his love. So then Jesus Christ is the first object of this divine love. And it is this love for Christ that enables them to suffer, enables us to suffer, enables us to persevere. It's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Again, this is so completely opposite of the world's thinking. 
You can only suffer for Christ if you see His glory, right? You can only suffer for Christ if He's worthy of suffering for. You don't suffer for someone who's not worthy. You don't suffer for somebody who you don't value enough to lose everything to gain. As a matter of fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, what? If we believed in Christ that there's no resurrection, our faith is worthless, right? If there's no resurrection, our faith is worthless. And if we trusted Christ only in this world, then we are most of all to be pitied. Why? Because I'll tell you, if the resurrection isn't true... And if the salvation promises in Christ are not true, it's a pretty dumb thing to suffer in this world. I'm going to do everything I can, if that's not true, to have pleasure and please myself and to get all I can out of this world because tomorrow I die. But if the resurrection is true and if it is real and it is, and you have believed in Christ who's died and risen, then it's worth giving up everything. And as a matter of fact, not only is it worth giving up everything, but even in giving up everything, what marks your life and what is demonstrated in that loss is that you love Him all the more. You love Him all the more. This is a supernatural faith. This goes against everything that is natural to our fallenness. This is a gift of God. And it's not something their unbelieving mind can grasp. It is to a natural man foolishness. It's a foolishness. But to those who believe, it is joy. It's joy. It's a joy that can only come from God. And again, it requires the eyes of faith. It's to see Christ. It's to see Him as He is. And to see Him as He is, is to love Him. The God of this world, if you remember, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. What do they not see? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But for those who have seen him, he's the most wonderful and beautiful. He's the most valuable and choice and precious gift of God that would gladly lose everything to gain him. Is Christ that precious to you? Listen to Jonathan Edwards. I say... I tempted just to, you know, spend 45 minutes and just read Jonathan Edwards because he had so much that was helpful here. But let me pull out just a few things to illustrate this here. Just to, to, to illustrate the difference of the sight of seeing the glory of Christ. And, and I intentionally didn't move on because it's, uh, it's worthy to stop here and to meditate just for a bit. Let me use Jonathan Edwards' words. So he gives this accounting and he was reading the words of 1 Timothy 1.17 which says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. And Jonathan Edwards said these words. He says, As I read the words, or as I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. I felt with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped in Him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. I went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by Him. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend time in reading and meditating on Christ on the beauty and excellence of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. I found not books so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects, 
The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden kindle up, as it were, a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I, might, that I know not how to express. Aren't those beautiful words? The question, though, is, has that ever been the experience of you or me? That's what it means to behold His glory. And if you've seen that Christ in that way, then you would gladly give up everything to gain Him. That would gladly give up everything to gain Him and suffer Him. And in that suffering with these Christians, say that I love Him and I love Him all the more. He said in another place, he said words, that God's excellency, His wisdom, His purity and His love seem to appear in everything, in the sun and the moon and the stars, in the blue sky. In the grass, flowers, trees, and the water, and all nature, I often used to sit and view the moon for continuance, and in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and sky to behold the sweet glory of God in these things. I had vehement longing of soul after God and Christ, and after more holiness wherewith my heart seemed to be full and ready to break. And that was a distinct change from before when he was merely... A religious person. He says this. The last part on this. He says the delights which I now felt in those things of religion were of an exceedingly different kind from those before mentioned. That I had when a boy. And what I then had no more of than one born blind has of pleasant and beautiful colors. They were of a more inward and pure and soul and animate, soul animating and refreshing nature. Those former delights never reached the heart and did not arise from any sight of the divine excellency of the things of God or any taste of the soul-satisfying and life-giving good there is in them. That is the reality of regeneration. That Christ becomes sweet to the soul. The way of grace becomes the more perfect way. The promises of heaven become the more valuable realities. And such that... One who has seen this is willing to forsake all to gain him. That's called repentance. That's willing to forsake all to suffer for him. And to say in the midst of that suffering, God is perfecting my faith. I will rejoice in him with a joy inexpressible. And can say that at the end of my trial, though at times I may have failed, at the end of my trial, that I love him more than I've ever loved him before. Only an awakened soul can do that. The opposite is to become bitter, is to complain and to be moved away from Christ rather than towards Him. And that's, just as a footnote here, a question that you always want to ask yourself in a trial. To know kind of those red flags, to do sort of a spiritual litmus test. Is this difficulty or is this trial moving me towards Christ or is it moving me away from Christ? Is it diminishing my love for him or is it strengthening my love for him? Is it causing me to rely on him more or myself more and not the promises of God? Here, for these and hopefully for us, these various trials that are proving their faith that will result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ is causing them to love him. To love him whom they have not seen, but they have rested in. Him who they have not seen, but they have trusted. Again, a natural unconverted person uh, will not understand this at all. At all. Now, I want to ask a question before we go to that last verse. I'm going to just camp here and just for a little while. 
just maybe ask this question too. So how do we know then if we love him? What does this love look like? What, what is this love that we have through faith in Christ? How is it demonstrated in our life? What are the characteristics of it? How do we know if the spirit of Christ truly resides in us? Is it merely a subjective experience? Is it emotions? Is our confidence because at one time I wept at Amazing Grace? Or that I turn on Christian music and my heart gets a little, you know, soft and my eyes get teary. And is that the confidence of faith? Is that what he's talking about here? Is that the kind of love that is the inexpressible joy, full of glory? No, it's something more than that. So let's just take a a moment uh, just to consider this, this phrase, this idea. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Or though you have not seen him, you love him. What are the experiences? Well, let me, let me just at least say this before I, I list out a few. Is that it's not absent the emotions. So, so by saying that comment, I don't mean to say that we don't honestly get teary-eyed about the gospel and about Christ. I mean, clearly the language that he uses here, greatly rejoice, joy inexpressible, full of glory, praise, glory, and honor, love him. We are emotive beings, are emotional beings. We have those and they should be most excited about the truth of God and the truth of Christ. It's not to say it's less than that. It is to say, however, that it is more than that. And, and Peter here describes it as inexpressible. What does he mean by that? Well, he means two things. There, there is an element of intensity there of emotion. But more, more the heart of what he's saying is that the love and the joy and the glory that we have in Christ, particularly in our suffering, is inexplicable for any other reason. Any other reason that, that we have attached ourselves to Christ by faith. It is a supernatural kind of joy. It's a supernatural kind of love. There is no reason for it or explanation for it outside of the faith that God has given us to lay a hold of Christ. Because nothing in in our circumstances, maybe producing that, things might be going lousy or bad. But it is to say that greater than that, what we see around us is what we do not see. And that is the glory that is promised to us in Christ. Now, let me then say, what is the model of this love? Or how do we know that we love him? That you have not seen him, you love him. Let me give just a few here. Uh, one that this is illustrated. First is this, to love Jesus is to obey him and to want to please him. That's at the foundation. To love Jesus is to obey him and to want to please him. You remember what Peter said in his beginning, his salutation, the opening part. He says this, he says, we've been uh, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by sanctification of the Spirit to obedience, to obedience. And to be sprinkled with his blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Obedience is the very, at the very heart of what it means to have a life in Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. He'll say the same thing in verse 14. Right after he begins this great doxology, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. Like the Holy One has called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. 
He says in verse 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Their love for him, in the midst particularly of their various trials and their suffering, is demonstrated in the fact that in their suffering, they obey him whom their soul loves. And the same it is for us. Obedience is the central mark of spiritual life in tandem with love for God. The question isn't how do I feel so much of God or how my emotions are stirred by any particular kind of circumstance. The question is this, is at the end of the day, do I obey Him? Do I do what He says? Do I put to death sin in my life? Do I trust Him? Do I follow and try to honor Him and do His will? That's the question. Obedience to the Father was a central mark of Christ's own divine sonship. It's what enabled Him to be our mediator and our example. And it was an obedience of Christ that sprang from His love for the Father. John 14, 31, All things I do, He says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I obey Him. I obey Him. And Jesus did what He did because... He loved the Father and He loved those given to Him by the Father. John 13, 1. He loved His own having loved them to the end, unto perfection, unto complete, uh, completion, ultimately by going to the cross. The obedience of the true Christian is in the same way a necessary fruit of love. And let me just make a note here though. When, I, when we say obedience, we're not merely talking and it, it wouldn't even be capturing what Peter's really saying here. We're not just simply talking about, I mean, it's, again, it's not less than this, doing the things God says. It's not merely an external obedience. It's not merely trying to outwardly bring our life in conformity to some standard. It is that, to be sure. It's not less than that. But obedience that is the fruit of love, that is from a regenerate heart, could better be described in this way. It's the soul's response of love to God. Not simply, again, by conformity, but conformity of the deepest realities of the soul that has been recreated to behold the glory of God, to love Him, to love the things He loves, to have fellowship with Him. That's the kind of obedience that comes out of this kind of love. It's, it's the soul that its deepest part has seen the glory of God, has understood His salvation and has loved him for it, and wants to do what he says, wants to conform to his image. That's what the Spirit produces in our heart. That's why after he could say this, though you have not seen him, you love him, he can say, as obedient children, in obedience to the truth, slaves do this, wives do this, those who are suffering do this, those who are living under a government do this, those who are maligned for the testimony of Christ, do this. In other words, in the midst of your suffering, your love is shown for Him in the fact that you obey Him. And again, Job is probably one of the great expressions of that, right? Though He slay me, yet I will worship Him. Yet I will honor Him. Yet I will love Him. Yet I will follow Him. And so that is, when we look at the reality of our spiritual life, we don't look necessarily at religious affiliation. We don't look at the kind of things that we do in the church merely alone. 
we ask ourselves, do I, as an expression of the reality of my worship of Jesus Christ, seek in the truest part of my being to obey Him and to honor Him? And when I fail, to repent of my failures and to turn once again to Him. So it's an obedience then that flows out of a true sight of redemption. And again, Peter is going to emphasize that. He says, at the beginning, he says, you've been sprinkled with his blood, but you've been saved to obedience, is actually the better way to say that. He's been saved to obedience. And you've been saved to be, you've been sprinkled by his blood or with his blood. And then he describes that a little bit more in verse 18. And he says, knowing that you were redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You've been redeemed with something that is the most valuable and priceless thing in the universe the death of the Son of God for your sin on your behalf for your redemption. And do you know what makes salvation and the death of Christ so amazing and, and so valuable? It isn't, it isn't just our being redeemed. The amazement of the cross, we're saying about it this morning, is the infinite glory and value of the one who was there. That's what makes redemption so priceless. That's what makes love for Christ so necessary. That was not merely a good man on the cross. It wasn't merely a sinless man. The one on the cross, the precious blood, the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, was the Son of God whom the Father loves with an eternal, intense love that He has had forever. It's the Son of God on the cross. And to see and to know that it's the Son of God on the cross that paid the purchase price for our redemption is to love Him and say, well, I will obey Him. I will obey Him. He's going to say this throughout. Uh, I won't read through all these. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Why does He, why does he give that? He's saying... He's giving that as the example and the foundation for our obedience. In this case, obedience to government, obedience to putting to death those lusts that wage war against the soul, obedience to slaves to unrighteous masters, obedience of wives to disobedient husbands. He says it's because Christ bore our sin on the cross, and because of that, and the reason for that is that we might live to righteousness. So if you haven't seen him, you love him, and your love for him is shown by him in whom you believe you obey because of what he has done. Because of what he's done. So it's a loving obedience that longs to please him. That longs to please him. That hates sin. Let, let me give, I, I, uh, just really quickly here, one more from uh, Jonathan Edwards, a statement on this, and then we'll move on. He says this in one of his journals. On, on one Saturday night in particular, I had such a discovery of the excellency of the gospel above all other doctrines that I could not but say to myself, this is my chosen light, my chosen doctrine. And of Christ, this is my chosen prophet. It appeared sweet beyond all expression. Here it is. To follow Christ, to be taught and enlightened and instructed by him, to learn of him and live to him. 
I had such a sense how sweet and blessed a thing it was to walk in the way of duty and to do that which was right and meant to be done and agreeable to the holy mind of God. That's the obedience of love. That's the obedience of love and what he's talking about here. Let me move on a second way. What is the second way that our love for Christ is demonstrated? It's demonstrated in this way, that we obey him and that we desire to be with him, to learn of him and to be with him. Now think about this. Now, how would they do that, and how could that desire be expressed? I mean, you can understand that for Peter and the apostles. They walked with him, right, for three years. They listened to him. They touched him. They heard him. They ate with him. They followed him and observed him in every way. Peter, who wrote this, loved Jesus and had the great privilege of hearing his words and sharing his life for three years. And you know the effect that had on Peter, right? We've already looked at that. Peter, at the end of his life, after his failing, remember the Lord appeared on the seashore in John chapter 21. And what did Peter want to do? He jumped in the water. John said, it is the Lord. Peter jumped in the water and he swam to Jesus so that he could simply be in his presence. He simply could be near him because he loved him so, so deeply. We do not have the advantage of Jesus' physical presence here. So then how can we, how can we love him whom we have not seen and be near him who is not physically here yet? Well, because Jesus made a promise to the disciples. Jesus made a promise to the disciples that's true of us. He made a promise to the disciples that even when he gave it to them while they were standing in his presence... They didn't fully comprehend it. They didn't fully get it. You know what the promise is? It's this. It says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. And because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. He says later, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Okay. That is how to say that we will come and have a deep and an intimate and a real fellowship with his own by the Spirit. It, but it comes to the one, as you notice there, who is obedient. Obedient. So how then can we love him whom we have not seen because God's opened our eyes by faith we see his glory in the proclaimed gospel. How can we be near him whom though now we do not see him, but believe in him? Well, one is because he's near to us by the Holy Spirit. How can we observe his life and fellowship with him? Because he's recorded it for us in the gospels. How do we... Want to know Christ? Well, if you want to know Him and have been made alive to Him and if you love Him and you want to be near Him, 
then you love to open up the Gospels and learn everything that you can about him. You want to hear about his miracles. You want to hear about his teaching. You want to see how he walked and responded to opposition. You want to walk with him through the garden, the experience of the abandonment of the disciples. You want to hear him talk about the promise of his kingdom. Those are all the things that he's recorded for us through men like Peter who did see him physically. But how do we know if we love him? We want to learn about him. We want to observe him. We want to listen to him. We want to read the epistles and know what it's like to live among the gathered people of God. We want to know what it's like to live faithfully in an unrighteous world. We want to know his will and how to do it. We read Revelation because we want to know his promise of his return. We want to ask questions as Peter often did to receive an answer from Jesus. But now we have something even more. We have the completed revelation of the word. We ask questions and we go to his word to see what he said about it. And we learn from him. That's why he can say over in chapter 2, when we get there, like, in the newborn babes, you long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you might grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So how can we spend time with him and be near him? We can go to his word and we can learn from him. We can listen from him. We can pray and talk to him. Well, I said that in a way when Jesus gave that promise, we said even the apostles didn't understand. Even at that point, how would they have understand that I'm going to be in you? The father is going to be in you. We're going to make our abode with you. That can only happen because Jesus went away. Because he was no longer physically present with them or us at this moment. And he would send his spirit to give to us an intimacy and a fellowship with him as a foretaste of the glory to come. But is just as real now that satisfies our soul and enables us to love him whom we have not seen. And to serve him and obey him whom we have not seen. This is what Paul calls in Colossians the mystery of Christ in you. And because the soul that has that nearness of Christ then in these trials grows in love and joy. The trials didn't extinguish their faith again, but it strengthened and perfected it as it should for us. As we're caused to lean on Christ all the more. All the more. Let me give a third. How do we know that we love Christ, whom we have not seen, and whom we believe? Well, one, we obey Him. We long to be near Him. And to study him and to learn of him and his word. And thirdly, we love those whom Jesus has redeemed. If we love the others who participate in this same love for Christ. Verse 22. Again, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, the living and the enduring word of God. How do we display obedience to the truth? We love each other. We love each other. As a matter of fact, he's going to say that several times. He says it here in verse 22. Over in chapter 2, he's going to say this in verse 27 or chapter... Well, let's skip that one because I wrote down the wrong one. In chapter 3, verse... 10, he says, let all, to sum up, let all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. This is the way that you're to interact with one another as you love one another. That's a sincere love for the brethren. 
You're going to love one another. You're going to love one another. He says in verse 14 of chapter 5, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all of you who are in Christ. Their fellowship, we don't, we don't have to kiss each other. George can. George can kiss. But, you know, that's his culture. The rest of us, we're learning to kiss. <laughs> but the idea here is, is that you love one another. You're a part of a family. You're, you have the same redemption. You share in the same spirit. And the way that your love for Jesus Christ is demonstrate, demonstrated is that you have a love for one another. That shows that your souls have been purified, as it were, from your former sin. And you have experienced the reality of introduction into the family of God. As a child of God. You love one another. This, is, this has always been, from Jesus, the hallmark of a spiritual life. You know these verses. I'm just going to remind you of them. Before he leaves, he says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all...